well, that was, that was beautiful, beautiful singing. Praise the Lord that we are held on to by him. Held on never to be let go. Uh, Reverend Franks, again, thank you for those kind words. Pastor Mike, Luke, and Pastor John, the entire staff, thank you for the invitation to come and engage in the space of mission, something that's very important. I've enjoyed my time here as I do always and so honored to serve with you all in God's house. And so excited to see my dear friend, Reverend Kevin Figgins in here. I figured I'd just go ahead and put him on the spot once again, keeping step with the custom here. This, this evening, our text comes from 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll look at verses 8 through 12. And we'll consider the theme of family values, Christian family values this evening. If you have a copy of God's word, you'll find these words recorded. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For those, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Mm. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your word. We do thank you for the blessing of gathering as your people once again to dig deep into the treasures of your word. And we come humbly asking for your help this evening. We pray that you would open the eyes of our heart. We pray that you would remove the block out of our deaf ears. We, turn, we pray that you would turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And we ask God that you would grant us understanding and nourishment this evening. God, I pray that you would anoint me afresh for this task. Uh, may my words be faithful to your word. And Lord, I boast in my weakness that your power would rest upon me. And I ask, O oh Lord, that Jesus would increase and that I would decrease. Not to us, O oh Lord, be the glory. Not to us, but to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you walk into just about any institution uh, that involves people, whether it's someone's home, whether it's a business establishment, whether it's school, 
or whether it's a locker room, anything that involves people coming together to get something done, uh, you might find a list of family values published somewhere overtly. I know I did growing up in my house, we had this long list of uh, our household's commandments, if you will. You come here, it stays here. What you do here, all that, you do it the way we do it. One of these funny lists of things. And some homes, maybe some institutions, other businesses, uh, may not have their family values or core values published as overtly. It might be something that's understood. It's shared covertly or orally, if you will. Uh, but these values are created in order, in the first place, to promote unity amongst the team. Unity amongst the family in order to work towards whatever their mission is. Because if you have a fragmented family, you can rest assured that nobody's going to get one step closer to the mission. And that's no, and, and, and one of the ways that, and, and, and in order to accomplish this, you have to pursue them proactively. It's not something that can happen passively. You can't just assume that these values that you share are going to cultivate themselves. Uh, you have to actively engage in cultivating these values uh, because there are no shortage of threats internally or externally that will threaten the family's unity. And one of the ways that we worked this out in college was hiring consultants to come in and place us through team bonding exercises outside of our normal practice routine. And what these exercises would do, uh, would, they would manufacture these adverse circumstances and force us to have to work together, force us to have to bond together and reveal to us where we actually stood with regard to our unity. And it's no less true for the people of God who are described as a family in the Word of God. We who are in Christ are a family and we have values that we must cultivate in order to establish unity, to glorify our God and to accomplish the mission to which we've been called as his people. And in our text this evening, Peter highlights this reality for us as he writes to exiles in the dispersion who are in a hostile environment. They are enduring hardship. There's difficult circumstances on the outside, external threats, and their own sin to deal with on the inside. And so then we see here that we're probably all familiar with this idea of external pressure or suffering that can cause division in a family through self-preservation. Because some of our tendencies, uh, one of our tendencies is towards preserving, preserving ourselves whenever we are faced with adverse circumstances. And that's true of family systems as well. But Peter helps us navigate that this evening. And we'll see here that because Christ sacrificed himself to redeem us, we are called to pursue self-sacrificial unity in the family of God, even under adverse circumstances. And so for our, our time this evening, I want to offer us three points, namely Christian unity, Christian reciprocity, and Christian motivation. Again, Christian unity, Christian reciprocity, and Christian motivation. If we look here, first off, we see Christian unity in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you, 
have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. All of you, Peter brings this entire section to somewhat of a close. He's dealing with the the exiles in the beginning. He talks about the inheritance that we're to receive. He talks about the holiness of life that we're to pursue. He moves on and describes our role in submitting to, our call to submit to authority. He deals with husbands and wives. And then he says, well, listen, to the entire camp, all of you who are under the reading of this letter, let me say this to you. You ought to pursue these virtues that promote unity. Peter tells us that we ought to be, we ought to have unity of mind. What does he mean? There's a call to live in harmony or be of one mind. This is not a call to be homogenous. This is not a call for all of us to just get rid of our own agency, get rid of our own thoughts and just subsume into one body. That's not what Peter's advocating here. As individuals, we will have a diversity of thoughts, we will have a diversity of, of opinions, we'll have a diversity of differences, and that is absolutely fine. God created you uniquely, God created me uniquely, and Peter says that is absolutely fine, but what he calls us to is a one-minded ethos, a one-minded character with our differences. And there are times with our differences that we will even have disagreements on important matters, but we must do this without being disagreeable. So it is not necessarily a sin to have a disagreement with your brother or sister. The call here, according to Peter, is to not be disagreeable. To illustrate this, think about, uh, think about this musically. You put together a, a tripart chord, C-E-G. Three distinct notes with three distinct sounds, albeit in the same scale. And when they come together, they make a beautiful, harmonious sound. This is what Peter is calling to us, calling us towards. In like fashion, lo the Lord is calling us to be together, to, 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 to make beautiful music with our harmony, though we are different in our perspectives, though we are different in our mindsets, though we are different in our opinions, he's calling us to make beautiful music by having one mind like a tripart chord. Peter says not only are we to be harmonious, but we are to be sympathetic. This is one that's hard for us. This is very difficult because what this calls us to do is suffer or feel like another person. In other words, Peter is calling us to walk in someone else's shoes, strive to understand the pain that someone else is feeling. Having a fellow feeling mutually, it, it involves mutual commiseration, having compassion on one another. It involves empathy. It involves moving towards someone in their pain and in their circumstance but our natural proclivity is towards self-preservation. Our natural proclivity is towards ourself, but the scripture will not let us off the hook because the apostle Paul says to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. This is the one anothering to which scripture calls us. And in fact, he, the writer of Hebrews tells us that this is one of the preeminent blessings that we get from Jesus Christ, that he sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses, that we can 
come to Jesus and ask for grace and help to find to help us in our time of need because he is not a high priest who has not been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. In other words, positively put, Jesus understands everything that we have faced. He understands our temptations. He understands our trials. He understands our afflictions. Yet, he is without sin so we can draw near to him to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. And one of the ways that Jesus does that is through other people. We are called to show that, to demonstrate Christ-like sympathy towards one another, even with our differences. You may not like the person across from you. you in fact, you may not, can't stand them on a day-to-day -day basis, but when they're hurting, Christ calls you to move towards them. One of the things we, our coach used to do <clears throat> in high school when we were running sprints after practice, and that's where you find out just how close you are with your teammates. After practice conditioning, our coach would line up when he saw us tired and worn out and at our wits end. And he would run his, he would run the sprints up and down the field with us. He would enter into our space. He would enter into our suffering so that when game time came, it developed trust. Whenever we, whenever we were tired, whenever we were worn out, whenever we were facing adversity um, in, in, in a game, we, we could truly believe that our coach understood what we were going through because he had entered into our space on a regular basis. And I tell you this afternoon, beloved, the only way that we will truly understand what each other goes through when we're faced with affliction is to enter into that space. It's to enter into the space of suffering with one another. So Peter calls us to live harmoniously. Peter calls us to be sympathetic towards one another. Peter calls us to exhibit brotherly love towards one another. In other words, we are called to live like we actually are family members. And the fact of the matter is, if you believe in Jesus and I believe in Jesus, we are family members. So what, Jesus, what Peter says is true in principle and in the heavenly places is to be worked out in time, in space, among people who bear the name of Jesus Christ. And the reality is that you are potentially going to be closer to someone who loves Jesus more so than you will someone who doesn't, even if they are in your family. Why? Because the bond that you have with Jesus Christ lasts forever. The bond that we have with Jesus Christ is one that will endure for all eternity, thereby uniting us as his followers together for all eternity. And so then the question that we have to ask ourselves this evening is how does this impact ethnic, cultural, national, and yes, political tribalism in the church. I think the last three years in America has shined a bright light on the need for us to be actively engaged in pursuing Christian unity. Now, I don't want to go all bad and say that everything is wrong in the church in America. That is not true. There are 
plenty of good things that are happening. There are plenty of reasons to be encouraged. But I, if you don't believe what I'm saying, you just turn on Facebook during a political cycle, an election cycle. In fact, I'm hoping that this sermon will get you prepared for the next election cycle or whatever the next tragic event that's going to happen in America that causes the church to be, to double down on its polarization that already exists. So we have to ask ourselves a question in light of this, how do we as people who are different, who are unique, who have our own sensibilities, who have our own political affiliations, who have our own cultural preferences, how do we as God's people with all those things move together as one because it's mandated in the scripture? Peter says to love each other like you are siblings. And it's high time that the church see the need for us not to just sit back and wait for Jesus to work this out. Jesus calls us to work it out in the here and now, not just in the by and by and tomorrow. What do we do with this? First prayer is Augusta. Peter tells us to live as brothers, to, to live as brothers. He says to be tenderhearted to one another. Some of your... <clears throat> Translations might say, be compassionate towards one another. And this is a very visceral word. In fact, in the Greek, it's splankos. It sounds like it takes a lot out of your body to say it. In other words, we ought to have feelings from the guts about each other, deep affections for one another. God will not just let us pay mere lip service of love to one another. God calls us to a deep affection for one another, an intense feeling for one another, a, a deep sympathy and a pity for someone in their suffering. He calls us to have a soft and tender heart towards our brothers and sisters. He says here to be, to have a humble mind. This is a lowliness of pride. It's not thinking more of yourself than you are. It's a recognition of your need for the Lord. It's dependence on God and not your own flesh. It's understanding that God created us for interdependence with each other. That is an inescapable reality of being a follower of Christ, that he calls us to dependence upon one another. And so taken together, can we see how these virtues promote unity or oneness in the family of God. These are all virtues that take our eyes off of ourself and place our attention and our affections and our concerns upon our brothers and sisters in their time of need. And if under adverse circumstances we are doing these things, if we are thinking more highly of our brother and sister than we are of ourselves, then we will move towards unity. And these are things we ought to be begging the Lord to help us excel in. These are attitudes and actions that promote, promote deep unity, the bonds of peace, and answer the Lord's high priestly prayer. And it's a major theme throughout the Bible that we are indeed one people. Though unique and different in our makeups, we are one people. So not only do we see here Christian unity, but we see Christian reciprocity. So in this next section, Peter doesn't only call us to love one another, 
He doesn't only call us to be tenderhearted to others and to care for those who are in the household of faith. Peter moves on to say that the other virtues that you must cultivate involve loving people who actually hate you, loving people who actually have harmed you, loving people who have actually wronged you. When I was growing up, there was that glorious saying, don't get mad, get even. We used to run around citing that as kids. And all those things, that, that helped motivate you towards getting back at somebody if you got beat on the field or if you were playing basketball in the park and, and someone did something to you, you, you got even. You didn't get mad, you, you got even. But the problem is when we apply that to contexts that involve us to move towards, move together to, in love towards one another. Because sin has a way of warping our sense of evenness and our sense of justice. And Lamech taught us that in the Old Testament, bragging and boasting of the destruction he did when someone hit him. See, our tendency is to not just want to get even. Our tendency is to want to go overboard and hurt other image bearers unjustly. And so while that, while that, that proverb or that slogan might appeal to our sense of justice at best, at worst, it's appealing to sinful revenge. And Peter tells us that as Christians, we are called to something that is otherworldly, not something that is worldly. That's a worldly value. Get back at somebody, get even. Do all you can to destroy them. But we're called to something that is different. In fact, he says here, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So what, what Peter is saying is here, do not repay evil for evil. This word kakos is do not withhold inner malice towards someone. Do not repay someone with this heart of evil towards them, a heart of malice or a heart of wickedness towards them. It's inwardly or foul or rotten. These things are contrary to God's law because God calls us not only to serve him externally, he calls us to serve him internally. Peter says, do not pay reviling for reviling. Do not pay insult for insult, slander for slander. And apparently some of the followers here in this context were taking things into their own hands. They said, well, you, you called me out. Well, then I'm going to call you back out. And how is that any different than the evil that they're seeing around them? Can I ask you that question this evening? How are we any different as God's people if somebody turns on our Facebook and see that we are just as loose and mean and wicked with our tongue as the next person is who doesn't know Jesus? How will people see anything different about us if with our tongue we just capitulate to the world's way of responding to things? Peter says, but on the contrary, do you see that? Peter says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. On the contrary, not just neutral ground, not just abstain from reviling, but Peter says to pay them a blessing for their reviling. Do you hear the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount echoing in the background? Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not withhold from a man. If they ask you for your cloak, give it to them. Tell you to walk them out, run to. You hear the sound of our Savior in the background. Peter is calling us to imitate 
the virtue of Jesus Christ, to imitate the life of Jesus Christ who dwells inside of us. Peter is calling us to live into that which we already are in Christ. Peter says to pay a person a blessing, that is confer what is beneficial on them. Speak positive words of them. Return to them things that will be to their benefit in exchange for them cursing you. He says, for to this you were called. So what we have here is Peter looking backwards and forwards at the same time. He said, you're called to live this way. You're called to expect that the servant is not greater than the master. In the same way that Jesus was persecuted, in the same way that Jesus was mistreated, you can expect that these things will happen to you as well. But then Peter also says, that you may obtain a blessing. And Peter tells us in the first chapter that we already have an inheritance that is stored up for us in the heavenly places. So there's a blessing waiting for us when Jesus returns or whether we die before he comes back, it's waiting for us in the heavenly places already. But again, here's the thing, let's not be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. Peter is saying that if you bless people right now in response to their evil, God's favor is showered upon you. God smiles upon that. God inclines himself towards you. Heaven smiles down upon you when you return a blessing for a curse. Why? Because you are revealing the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to love your enemies. Love your enemies. That is hope the best for them. He said even... Even enemies love their kind. How are you any different if you just love each other? That's pretty easy. What are you revealing about God by just doing the easy thing? Peter says, here's what reveals God's character in greater detail. The Lord reigns over the just and he reigns over the unjust. He's kind not only to his people who have experienced his special saving grace, but he's kind even to people who are outside of the household of faith. So what we're doing is dramatizing the grace that was shown to us. We are reflecting the heart of God. God showed us mercy when we were in our helpless estate, when we were hostile towards God, when we were under the power of the Prince of Air. So now Peter calls us to have that same mindset towards others who are hostile towards God. And we reveal something about the God we serve. We reveal something about the salvation that we possess when we return blessing in exchange for cursing. And Peter says that, You store up blessing for yourself when you respond to evil the Lord's way. And could it be this evening that God moves us into difficult circumstances where we have to face hostility in order for us to experience his power, in order for us to experience his strength, so that we might perchance see someone come to faith? Could it be that God moves us into circumstances where people will try us? 
Could it be that God moves us into circumstances where people will afflict us, where people will be hard with their words, to give us an opportunity to witness to them, to give us an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ towards them? Consider what the evangelistic outcome could be if we're patient with those who are in opposition to the faith. Consider what God might do. The number one apologetic is love. Give a hope, give an account for the hope that's in you. But do it with love, Peter says. Paul says to be patient. And all these are virtues that reveal God, that reveal God's character and reveal how God dealt with us. And then there's a heavenly reward, as I said before, the joy of glorifying our Father in heaven, the joy of knowing that we have submitted to heaven's way in response to the world's accusation, the world's hardships. I had a dear friend who struggled with, who struggled with a bout of acne while in college. And they were sitting in a classroom and he was quick with it, very, had sharp wits. And they were sitting in the classroom and the teacher gave them a project to do. He said, the teacher said, I want you to draw a picture of what comes to mind when you look at your neighbor. It's a very risky thing to do with a bunch of witty people in the classroom. And the student sitting next to my friend drew this picture. He got down on his desk. He drew this picture. and He said, hey, this is what I see when I think of you, John. And the picture was one that exaggerated the struggles of his face. The picture was one that caricatured his bout with acne. The picture was one that highlighted the things that he would want to hide. And everybody in the classroom erupted. Everybody knew that he had been silenced, that he had been sidelined. Keep in mind, this friend had quick wit. So everybody, everybody expected him to come back with something big. So the anxiety mounted in the classroom and John took to his paper and he started drawing and everybody's waiting. And he handed it back to him. He said, this is what comes to mind when I think of you, Mark. And it was a beautiful and glorious picture that exaggerated everything that was wonderful about him. And the class stood in amazement. In like fashion, if we respond to evil with a blessing, people will stand in amazement of our glorious Father in heaven. And they'll want to know more about the God that we serve. Not only do we see uh, Christian unity, Christian reciprocity, but now we turn to Christian motivation in verses 10 through 12. And what is the motivation for the Christian to move towards one another? What is the motivation for the Christian to respond to evil with blessing, to respond to uh, accusation with blessing, to respond to reviling with blessing, to respond to curse with blessing? Peter quotes Psalm 34 and he tells us, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue free from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What we have here is the sovereignty of God as our motivation for living and cultivate, from pursuing unity and cultivating these virtues in the face of opposition. Peter tells us using an Old Testament quote, that the key to experiencing God's blessing is taming our tongue. James said that there's the power of life and death in the tongue. We can build people up and we can curse them with our tongues. We can do so much destruction with this little instrument. And Peter says to gain, to experience God's blessing, one must control it. And there are no shortage of examples beloved, of how destructive the tongue can be, just to name a few. The tongue can be deceptive. The tongue can mislead people. The tongue can cause so much chaos with falsehood. This is why Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The tongue can be divisive. The tongue can cause so much separation and hurt. We see this in our current cultural moment. We see propaganda of all sort being spread. We turn on the internet and we see fights in every single media outlet that you can think of. You turn on cable news, you see nonstop fights. You see character assassination of all sorts and kinds. There's so much destruction that can be done with the tongue. Peter says, the key to experiencing God's blessing is to keep yourself free from evil with this thing. And what does he tell us? He roots our hope in the sovereignty of God. He said, God is aware. God's eyes are on the righteous and his ears are towards their prayers. God sees the righteous. God sees you and God knows you. And this reminds me of Exodus chapter two where the cry of the people reached heaven. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw and God knew the concerns of his people. He was intimately acquainted. And it's no less true for us today. God sees us and God knows every condition that we must undergo, even when we are standing square to square, face to face with folks who oppose us. And we want to respond in our flesh. The Lord sees us. And that is our motivation for responding with blessing, the sovereignty of God. He doesn't give us all the details of what happens to the evildoers, but we know judgment awaits them. And Peter addresses a major concern for us. And the question is, is God aware? Does God see? Does God truly understand what's going on here when I'm wronged? And will I be vindicated? And as we move down In the text, we see clearly that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. You all remember growing up, after getting disciplined by one of your parents or whoever was the authoritative figure in your life, uh, you you, you run back and say, hey, you see see what they're doing? They're they're doing the wrong thing. I see see kids do this all the time. You see what they're doing? See, I'm doing the right thing. 
because I, I, you, you don't want to get in trouble again. I, and you want to make sure that justice is administered. The same thing is true for us even as grown-ups right now. We wonder, God, do you see? Do you see that person doing the wrong thing? Do you see me trying to do the right thing? And the answer is a categorical yes. Peter says God sees you. He sees the righteous. And, the, and God hears the prayers of the righteous. So God will work it out in time. We have we don't need to wonder any longer if God sees and knows. Peter says, God sees and he hears. If we're wondering about the character of our Heavenly Father, let your heart be not burdened. And we see the kindness of God preeminently in the glorious work of his son, Jesus Christ. The justice that our sin deserved was placed on our big brother, Jesus Christ. The one who did no wrong paid the penalty for our wrongdoing. The righteousness of Christ was transferred to our account. Those who didn't deserve righteousness got it. And the one who didn't deserve the wrath of the Father took it. And all who have trusted in Jesus, rest assured, let your heart be settled this evening. All who have trusted in Jesus will be fully vindicated. John tells us that the Lord is making all things new. He tells us that he will wipe every tear from your eyes. We have to have a long view of justice. We have to have a long view of this thing of salvation. God is working things out that we cannot understand right now. And in some glorious and mysterious way, whatever pain, whatever insult, whatever hardship, whatever affliction you have endured, whatever suffering for the name of Jesus, whatever right you have tried to do and are worried that God has not vindicated you will be fully realized in the new creation. Because God promises there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more heartache. And he will work all things out. Justice will be worked out according to God's design. And so knowing that frees us up to return a blessing for curse, to move towards one another in Christian unity, even when we have difficulty dealing with each other. Because we are revealing the character of God who once again took on this took on the burdens that, and the punishment that our sin deserved. And so then, in light of that, we are freed up to show mercy to other people, even if they're not deserving of it. Because after all, we weren't deserving of the mercy shown to us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we beg for your help. And we ask that you would seal these words to our hearts by the power of your spirit so that in the day of test, we would be people found returning blessing for curse so that your character might reveal to a watching world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.